welcome to Taking Care of Business. I'm Jackie Mitchell. This is where we pick the best brains in the business world and you, the listener, feel like you are eavesdropping on a really interesting coffee conversation to give you and your business the inside edge. We take a look into the minds and brands of successful leaders and probe into how they think, feel, learn, manage teams and themselves. This show is about connecting and creating conversations that matter building your powers of influence, persuasion, and ultimately communication. We explore the latest evidence-based findings in neuromarketing, consumer behavior, business techniques, tips, trends, and tricks. We love sharing the knowledge and serve brain food to keep your business healthy. To continue eavesdropping and to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and my website, Brandstorm. So while our first guest settles in, orders their coffee, grab yourself one and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business Now. And next guest is talking about a topic that's very close to my heart. It's all about branding. He is an entrepreneur and brand building specialist who helps senior leaders and teams build customer-led growth strategies. He's the co-founder of Agents of Spring and Quest Beverages, and he's just released his first book, which I love the title of, Brand Hustle. like to welcome to the program Troy McKenna. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Good to have you here. Brand Hustle, great title. Was that hard to come up with? Oh, there were a few iterations to it. Uh, one of the, the, the working titles the whole way through the book was Rapid Branding, but uh, oh, okay. yeah, Brand Hustle just end up having a bit more uh, bit more character and a bit more intrigue to it. So that's what I went with. Definitely. Now, your first book, how was the, how was the process for you? Uh, good, good. It's, yeah, it's um, a fascinating process. It took about 12 months of researching and writing. Uh, had some amazing interviews along the way, and I found the hardest bit, the last pieces of just getting, making sure there's no typos and all that, those little things you don't think about. But, um. Yeah, it was good. It was good to put uh, a good chunk of time into something. Uh, so it help, really helps uh, crystallise my thinking and the space as well, which is good. Yeah, okay. Oh, that's, a, that, that's a good point. A bit like when people write uh, award submissions, they always say businesses, it helps them sort of get some clarity and crystallise their thinking. And I suppose a book would do a similar process. It's probably more a robust process, writing a book, I'd imagine. Did, did you, I'm just curious, because I always uh, know how difficult it is to write a book and everyone's got different styles. So did you have a, a format or a formula that you'd write, you know, two hours a day or, or ha- what, what, what was your process? Uh, I actually found that uh, for the first hour or so that I sat down, it, was a, it took me a long time to get my head into it. So in the end, what I was doing was putting whole di- days aside on the weekend and sitting at a desk all day. And what I found was a few hours into it, I'd really start to get into a flow and then I'd try and crack a chapter in a day uh, was the approach. Right. Okay. It's interesting. All right. Now let's talk about... This book and your background, and it's uh, it's certainly sparked my interest uh, being in the field of branding and, and in marketing. And in uh, in your bio here, particularly on the book, uh, the brief here, it says it's time to reinvent marketing. And uh, and I just thought, here, here. So that certainly grabbed grabbed my attention. Uh, and then the bit about how impatient organisations are when they want to build brands so fast. Uh, 
has that changed in your experience? You're finding that more organisations are going, come on, faster, 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 as opposed to let's be more strategic. What's your view? Yeah, I think most businesses are getting faster, and I think it's uh, you know it's just a general business culture at the moment of you know uh, startups being able to disrupt big businesses really quickly, and so you know historically you'd be able to put in place a, a three-year plan and be competing against other companies that would have the same sort of time horizon, and it was all pretty safe and uh, known. These days you can put a plan in place, and you know within a few weeks some startup is beat you to the punch or has done something different that's really disrupting your business. So businesses are just reacting a lot quicker these days. And I think the biggest thing is uh, everyone's chasing short-term financial results, you know, whether it's this quarter or this 12 months. And so the idea of investing something that might take a year or two to pay back uh, is a bit foreign to most businesses. So, yeah, things are changing a lot and things are getting a lot faster. So how do we then stop brands from suffering? Well, I think the big part, which I try to get to in the book, is there there are things you can do in the short term that do ladder up to a bigger picture and, and uh, you know, build for the future. Uh, and equally, there are things you can do that um, give you short-term results but don't necessarily do anything more than that. Uh, and I think there's a really nice study that was done by a couple of scientists out of the UK called The Long and the Short of It, and they, they talked about that as a you know, you can do promotional stuff like price discounts or giveaways or win this, uh, and you can get a really good return within those few weeks that the promotion's on, but then your sales drop back right to where you were before you started mm. versus investing in something like a, a big ad campaign or some really innovative products uh, that take a long time to build, uh, but you'll get a longer-term payback out of that. And so, yeah, it's just trying to find that balance, but I think there's lots of things you can do the do ladder up to a bigger picture. Right, you've uh, you've worked with some uh, big brands, Mars, Snickers, Schweppes, Gatorade, uh, and you've also just you've got your own startup. So this is really this is really exciting. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, I was at Schweppes for about four and a half years, working on all the drinks uh, portfolio, and uh, I guess what I saw there was lots of opportunity, but a big business couldn't really tackle it well and uh, had lots of barriers to getting into the more innovative space. So uh, we've started a business called Quest Beverages. Um, our first product uh, is a mineral water brand called Carmen Stormy. And uh, I guess the problem we're solving for people is that uh, people find, they need, or everyone knows they should be drinking two litres of water a day, but they find it boring. Uh, so we found a way to make it more interesting with a, a great water source from a dormant volcano and gives us nice mineral content. But I guess the real thing that's changing is the uh, the issue of single-use plastic and plastic are the, you know, a huge issue for the planet. Uh, and so we're packaging our product in aluminium cans. Aluminium is the most recycled, has the highest recycled content and uh, the most likely to get recycled again. So it's... Um, the most sustainable packaging alternative there is. So we're we're in the early stages, about 18 months into that journey of uh, getting it out there, um, having great success, sort of finding little pockets that are too uh, small or off the radar for the big guys. And we're just, um, you know, trying to build solid foundations for the business uh, that we can set it up for the long term. 
Oh, that's that's wonderful. Now, I have to ask my curiosity, which is uh, related to someone we both know, Yvette Cordy, uh, who is your partner in life, and she wrote a wonderful book called Cultivating Curiosity, who I've had on the show. So you can blame Yvette for sparking my curiosity. <laughs> but where whereabouts is the volcano? Uh, about 80 kilometres out of Melbourne towards uh, Ballarat. Oh, uh, so you okay. wouldn't have thought it, but there's uh yeah, there's a whole um the Victorian Central Highlands, a lot of it was uh um based on dormant volcanoes. So uh yeah, nice little water source. What we found is that it it the water filters through for about thirty years and picks up this nice mineral content. But it also acts like a, a nice little crater, so it keeps the water above the table lands and sort of protects it and keeps it pristine and clean for us. How did you find it? Uh it's a bit of industry intel and a bit of uh, snooping around and a right. bit of uh, a lot of conversation. Fa- absolutely fascinating. Now, the brand Calm and Stormy, how did you come up with that for a name? Uh, we use the process we use in Agents of Spring, which is uh, uh, a sort of rapid prototyping approach. Um, but we had about uh, a, hand- or a handful of different territories we went after. In the end, we had about 15 different designs and different names. Uh, and so basically our approach was to get um, an alternative in front of people as quick as we could. Uh, and so we used um, a range of designers to get um, alternative designs. And then we, at our local printer, got a couple of $2 stickers printed and stuck them on cans and brought consumers in to talk about that and went to retailers and talked to retailers about that and just learned from that. And we did about five rounds of prototyping to the point where we were Happy with that, and then obviously tasting of the water sources to get to the best uh, the best alternative. Yeah, look, I think there's such a great lesson in there, Troy. You know, for uh, entrepreneurs, startups, new businesses, is just to test, test, keep testing, and keep testing, and not wait, not, not waiting for it to be perfect, but actually test and adjust, test and adjust. I think that's a really, really great story. I love I love the volcano bit at the end. Now, back to the book Brand Hustle. I'm curious now as well to the term hustle. It's obviously a bit of a, a, a trending word at the moment. We keep hearing about everyone having these side hustles. Uh, is that where you've got the inspiration to call it Brand Hustle? Or what's the story behind that? Yeah, definitely. It's sort of trying to borrow from the, I guess, the entrepreneurial culture that's coming through. Um, but I guess my key message is, you know, I sort of started writing this and I, I've spent role time in a CMO role and talked to a lot of CMOs and know a lot. And, you know, the traditionally marketing approach would take a few years to develop up a, a plan and, you know, it might be a couple of years to actually execute something and get in the market. But the tenure of a CMO is getting shorter and shorter. So actually they're running out of time in the job to get to to a point where they make an impact. Now, you compare that to a startup business that, uh, you know, doesn't have time to wait around and it's just got to get stuff happening as quick as possible. Um, and so I think it's bringing that entrepreneurial spirit into marketing, which is traditionally a bit longer term and a bit slower, uh, and particularly bringing it into an established business as well. Yeah, in the book you talk uh, about brand building and use some great practical case studies. Uh, what's some of the uh, the ugly of brand building? You talk about good, bad and ugly, and I'm attracted directly to the ugly. Can you give an example of a uh, super ugly brand building case study? Uh, well, actually, one of the early ones I spoke about in the book is the Holden Commodore, and you know, I sort of pick on them a bit, but 
equally, I think there's lots of brands that have been in the same space, which is they just haven't moved. And so Holden Commodore was the number one car in Australia for, you know, for ages. Uh, and it's now, you know, fast disappearing and, you know, potentially won't even be on our roads anymore. And I think, you know, what happened there was that, you know, they have a uh, new product cycle of five years to build a new car. Um, they just didn't listen to the customer enough, didn't move fast enough. Their marketing campaigns that are really anchored on, uh, you know, V8 Mocars at Bathurst and, you know, just didn't talk to um, the Australian drivers anymore. And so while they were doing that, the SUV categories popped up with something a bit sexier and a bit more practical for families to fit all the, the gear in with all the kids and toys and so on. Um, you know, and equally the, the trading market's gone to much bigger use. Uh, and so I think they just didn't move fast enough uh, and as a result have gone from number one to, you know, rapidly disappearing. Yeah, that's a really great example. I'm also uh, interested in your view of the concept of branding. It used to sit uh, in the advertising agency. They used to be the custodians of the brand about 20 years ago, and then it sort of moved a bit more strategically, which was which was a good move. And uh, I'm sort of seeing now that social media is now trying to get a piece of it. What's your experience on your view of where brand sits now in the marketing and business world? Uh, I think the concept of brand is, is sort of usually sat with marketing, but I think what a brand actually is is it's um, it's more than just the logo and the packaging design and the name. It's it's all the touch points for a customer. So really, the entire business should be lined up between behind delivering a brand experience mm-hmm. for their customers. Uh, and I, I and I think it's you know you're right. Everyone's trying to get a, a part of it. Um, Social media is really a, a tactic on how you communicate. It's not really the, the brand strategy that I think, you know, the, the challenge for a lot of marketers is getting sucked into uh, a lot of short-term fads and, um, you know, noise, I guess, if, you know, what's the latest algorithm doing on, you know, Google or Instagram, and so how do we adapt to that? So I think, you know, there's definitely a strategic part to marketing. There needs to be someone leading the brand, but equally there needs to be lots of parts of the business that are lined up behind that to the to deliver, you know, what the customer needs. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, Troy, if you were to stand up in front of third-year business students majoring in marketing and give them some advice before they're about to step out of the uh, comfort of university life into real world and getting marketing jobs, what a bit of advice would you give them? Oh, that's a tricky one. I was actually talking to someone I studied marketing with 20 years ago recently and and we were reflecting on how very little of our marketing degree actually was relevant in a true <laughs> yes. business environment, Yeah, uh, which is, you know, I've had that moment with a, a, a marketing graduate coming into a business and realising that he, he didn't really learn much and he had to learn it all again. Mm. Um, I, I think uh, I think my biggest piece of advice is get, is get your hands dirty and um, get, uh, get involved in a business of some sort uh, as soon as you can uh, and... The other piece which I have practiced through, throughout my career is understand not just the brand you're working on, but as many as possible. So I always made it a job to understand what my colleagues were up to or, or sort of networking within the industry and talking to other brand custodians and talking about what their challenges they're facing or what they're up to and what's working and what's not. Because it's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's, I, I think it's marketing and building a brand is 
probably the hardest role you can have within the business because it does take so many facets. So it is a, it is a constant learning exercise. And what you've learned at marketing is great university. Um, we'll have a pretty short shelf life in terms of being able to be, have a long-term career in marketing. Yeah, because things are changing so much, so it's important to to keep on top of things. And those listening that want to keep on top of things with branding, I recommend Troy McKinna's new book, Brand Hustle, Four Critical Foundations to Accelerate Brand Growth. Troy, if anyone wants to continue the conversation with you, they can find you on your website, agentsofspring.com, LinkedIn and Instagram. Definitely. Yes, no, definitely get in touch if anyone's got a good meaty brand challenge they want to talk about, give me a call or, or get in touch over the um, over the internet. Uh, we'd love to try and help out. That sounds wonderful. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks for being part of the show. Great. Thank you, Jackie. Great. Thank you. We love hustling here on Taking Care of Business as we speak to some of the best brains in the business world and uh, an eavesdrop on uh, really interesting cafe conversations. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business, where we are picking the best brains and minds in the business world. And something that's happening a lot now with online, particularly with social media, is the power of video. And our next guest is an author, and he's a video strategist. I think that's a new title. I'm going to ask him about that, but I'd like to welcome first to the show Michael Langdon. Hello. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Hi, Michael. I'm good, thank you. Video strategist, it's the first time I've heard that term. Am I just out of touch or is that a new term? I guess it's relatively new, but it's it's not uh, uncommon to hear a video strategist. And the reason why it's come about is, obviously, as you mentioned, video is is now very, very in our faces on on the Internet. 80% of Internet traffic is video traffic. And it's not quite uh, good enough for brands and companies just to like haphazardly produce videos, you have to have a strategy behind your videos if you really want to harness the the powers that video brings. And video is incredible at the acquisition stage for a company or converting, you know, leads into customers. Uh, but you, you you should always have a strategy behind the videos that you're going to release because different videos uh, serve different purposes. So that's why it's always good to, to have a, a video strategist work with you together with your videographer or your video production house. Well, it is refreshing. I am a huge fan of strategy, and I think it's the reason that most small businesses uh, don't do well in the first few years. The statistics, I'm sure we all know them, are, are frightening. And I think it's because, you know, business, small business people sometimes tend to get very reactive and don't think about strategy and planning, and particularly something like video where it sort of looks like people just – put their phone, just think, I'm just going to say this. They might have a few notes, but don't think about the big picture. Now, I was watching one of your videos in prep for today and something that you said I thought was brilliant was about getting people to think about how you want the audience to feel. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, video video for me is is just a vehicle. Uh, the, real, the real key uh, ingredient that we're talking about here is emotion. Uh, and emotion drives drives business, drives human beings, um, and it's what we we, we take uh, actions on. And in our experience, we we focus on e-commerce video. It's what makes people buy from other people. So eliciting emotion, and, and that's why I called my book "Welcome to the Age of Emotion," is where we're at right now. It's not just about giving someone a message. 
It's about really trying to tap into how they're going to feel or how they're going to yeah, react to the message that you're giving them. Um, so, yeah, emotion is, is the, the, most, the most key ingredient in, in producing a video, and that's why I always recommend everyone to, to lead with that. When you produce a video, always think, what do you want people to feel? Like, how do you want to, to leave them feeling? Is it inspired? You know, is it, you know, do you want to cause a bit of curiosity or mentally stimulate them? But always think about how you want people to feel because people remember feelings um, and that's really what's going to have an impact for your brand. Yeah, I think that's the best bit of advice. Well, it's how we're hardwired, it's how our brain is hardwired, so emotion, but also vision. And that's the reason that video is done so well as far as from a visual perspective. Uh, so what's some of the tips that if people are doing video, besides you know thinking about how you want the audience to feel, from a visual perspective, Michael, what should be the key elements that uh, people should be focusing on? visual perspective, and I guess it overlaps a little bit with the technical perspective, uh, it's very important that, that you have, that the video looks good. So good lighting is paramount. Never shoot yourself like with a window behind you because you'll you look like a silhouette. Um, and I guess almost as importantly, or arguably more importantly than visually, is make sure the, the sound is spot on. Uh, if you struggle with audio or if, you're, if your viewers are struggling to hear you, they'll switch off. So make sure it looks good. So decent lighting, but more importantly, make sure you sound good. So invest in a in a good microphone if you're doing, you know, DIY videos. Uh, a, a good lapel microphone for your iPhone or your smartphone is an absolute must. And how long should videos go for? There's been some conflicting time, you know, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 1 minute. What's your view? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and this, this, this again, this comes down to strategy as well. Um, <clears throat> stats show that, uh, that our average engagement level for videos on a website are about two minutes. After the two minutes, uh, engagement levels drop severely, but they kind of pick up again at about the seven to ten minute mark, and that's because you can get away with videos that are that much longer if you're doing a training course, for example, or you're doing educational videos like tutorials. Uh, people will watch them for a lot longer. Uh, likewise, if you're doing a video for, for Facebook, you really have to make it uh, succinct and snappy in the first 15 seconds and really lead with a hook for the first three seconds, uh, because Facebook is very much like a like a, a motorway. You're driving down a motorway. There's all these billboards going past you really quickly. So your video is going to be really captivating within the first three seconds. Uh, so the length varies on what platform you're using and what you're using your video for. Um, and that's why, going back to your initial question, there are video strategies uh, strategists out there to help you out with that. Yeah, I love that. Now, you talk also in your latest book, which uh, which you mentioned earlier, Welcome to the Age of Emotion, uh, and you talk about uh, videos going viral. What's the benefit of a video going viral? And I suppose we should start with a definition of what that means. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, that's, that's a good point. I guess um, virality isn't really – it's just a, a, a large amount of shares, more than you, you've experienced. We've had a couple of videos go viral about ourselves, um, but have gone over the one million mark. Um, but again, like people think that, and like, two years ago, all the requests that we used to get were, I want my video to go viral. I want my video to go viral. And really, if you haven't got strategy in place for a video to go, uh, for, for, for the video that goes viral to help your brand, then it's an absolute waste of, of views. I mean, exposure is always good, but usually after you've gone viral is when you have reactive strategy. Um, <clears throat> and unfortunately, it's very hard to, make a video go viral. The majority, majority of the time, 
they happen to go viral. Um, so it's very hard to have that collateral material in place for your video to then harness the exposure. But uh, I, I would guess the, the one key ingredient you want to get if a video does go viral is, is exposure, brand awareness. Um, so I'd say if, if you're looking to make a video to go viral, make sure there's some sort of watermark or there's some sort of connection to your brand if that is your measure of success. Um, but in our experience, getting a few qualified people to see your video is more valuable than getting loads of people who are not really going to benefit your brand or your business. Yeah, okay. So you talk about uh, going from attention to conversion. So video is very good at getting attention. It ticks all the boxes from our neurological perspective. So how do you actually get that move from attention to conversion, particularly if you've got, say, uh, uh, an online retail? Yeah, and that, that's where we specialize, actually. And all the acquisition videos, uh, or the majority of the acquisition videos, uh, are living on social media, so Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, to have a call to action that drives traffic to your website. And it's on your website where we work with a lot of uh, e-commerce retailers where we really help them convert. And, and video is great at converting for e-commerce retailers because your, your leads are already warm and all they need is a little bit of uh, education, information, and to get it a little bit of trust. And that's where longer videos, perhaps a two-minute video that is very honest, very truthful, and just gives a, a nice review of what you're selling, that's when people are going to, you know, that's what's going to push them to add the car and buy from your company as opposed to somewhere else on the Internet because you've given them that bit of honest educational information that builds a bit of trust. Uh, selling is, is or buying is, is based on trust. So videos are very good at, at harnessing that trust that comes with the other neurological aspects that you were talking about, because video stimulates you know, other neural pathways that are not just about um, seeing something at core value, but just getting that feeling that you can trust a company or a brand to make a purchase from them. Yeah, you mentioned the honest uh, side of it, which, you know, authenticity, everyone's talking about that now, and we're so sick of the BS, and we actually want some real truthful uh, communication. So where's the balance between, say, that organic video uh, looking quite rough but real versus something that is professional, maybe over-edited? Where do you find that balance? I, I think nowadays it's very easy to produce uh, something that looks quote-unquote professional. Um, I mean, the, the iPhone videos are very good at, at uh, generating awareness on social, but that's more acquisition. I think if, if you can possibly get away with like an iPhone video for a product review, so to speak, but uh, I think customers um, appreciate you spending a little bit more time in something that looks you know, half decent and not just uh, DIY, just because they're, they're, it shows that you're invested in them as a consumer and that you're offering them a good service, and it also reflects you as a brand. Um, I think when people start getting disengaged, it's more about the, the messaging that you give them um, and not pushing a hard sell, if that makes sense. So the video might look polished, but if you're going like, you know, buy one and get one free, and if you ring now, you get this extra offer, people get switched off by that. Whereas opposed to, as opposed to a video looking nice and just, you know, having a nice presenter or a nice member of your team, just, you know, just being candid on camera and saying, look, these are the benefits of the, of the, of the product we're selling and this is, sorry, these are the features of the product we're selling and these are the benefits. This is how it's going to improve your life and this is why you should, you know, look into buying it. 
So it's, it's about the messaging and, and being honest and, and then just making sure the production values are there, uh, but not necessarily overspending on production values. Right. That's, uh, that's great advice. Uh, Michael Langdon, welcome to the Age of Emotion. Michael Hanrahan Publishing, and Michael Hanrahan has been on this show before, and uh, I, I love that he's uh, he's supporting business people like yourself in in spreading the good word uh, in business. And I wish you continued success. Now, uh, Michael, if anyone wants to find out a bit more about you or buy your book, where should they head? Levity.video. Levity is the name of our, our video production house. Um, and you can buy the, the book from levity.video, so www.levity.video. L-E-V-I-T-Y? Correct. .video. Great. All right. Fantastic. Thank you, Michael Langdon, for your precious time today. Thank you, Jackie. Hope you're enjoying eavesdropping on our interesting conversations here at Taking Care of Business. Don't go away. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Our next guest is a global thought leader in commercial strategy and she's one half of the strategic and creative team behind the most successful new product launch in Australian history. Wow. She has helped entrepreneurs build internationally successful businesses and work with some of the world's most influential organisations. What a CV, what an intro. I'm really excited and looking forward to having a chat with and welcoming Kieran Flanagan. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Good to have you here. Now, I have to ask the first question that you're involved with, uh, the successful new product launch in Australian history. What was that? I know it's very mysterious, isn't it? It is. Without telling you what it was. I know. Oh, it was Coke Zero. It oh, was. it was Coke Zero, right. Yes, most successful new product launch in history, in Australian history. Um, they sold their annual projection of within, I think, two or three months. And it had actually failed in uh, the US and in Canada prior to launching in Australia, and they almost didn't launch it here. It was such a dismal failure in the other countries. So we were third to go, and... Luckily enough, we did something completely different to the other country. And uh, anyway, it launched here and was very successful, and they then took that strategy back around the world to launch uh, in the other country successfully. So what did you do differently? Do you know what? It's quite a lot of things. Initially, the American marketers had essentially made it uh, a bit of a Diet Coke, so it still had quite a female target, and we went for a male target. Um, the cam was black here. The cam was white in other markets. Mm. Uh, so it was very different. It was it was aimed at men. It was aimed, it had a very different tone to uh, Diet Coke. So it, that's what made it successful, taking a very masculine approach and saying men want to have a no sugar drink as well, even though women can drink it too, of course. But yeah. uh, men tend to not drink a product aimed at women whereas women are quite happy to drink product aimed at men. Right, and uh, having to work with a iconic brand like Coca-Cola, you know, when in, in brand and advertising world, it's always one of the sort of top three brands that uh, particularly as you're starting out, I so hope I hope I get to work for a Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, what was it like working from them from a, from a brand perspective and having them as a client? Look, I worked with Coca-Cola for 10 to 15 years. I can't remember exactly. Uh, and it was just an absolute privilege. And I think one of the most amazing things about working with a company like Coke is that no matter their scale, is that they were always incredibly ambitious. They were always looking at how can we do something 
better? How can we uh, improve our, what we offer? How can we connect better with our customers? And I think every day you show up to work with them and be looking to answer those questions. They're always looking for growth and improvement. And I think that's a really good lesson. It doesn't matter how big or small our businesses are, we should always be looking to do stuff better. I think that's that probably for me was one of the best things about working with them. Yes, yeah, success leaves clues, doesn't it? And that's certainly one that uh, anyone listening now from an entrepreneur, small business owner, working corporately uh, can certainly take out of it. And that's great. Thanks for sharing that story. I knew there was going to be a good story, Kieran, behind that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Now, the next bit of the story is that you have written a book called Forever Skills, the 12 skills to future-proof yourself, your team, and your kids, and you've done that with Dan Gregory. And anyone listening, and a lot of our listeners are great fans of the Gruen transfer, and they will know Dan Gregory from the Gruen transfer. How did you and Dan uh, co-author this? So, did you work together? Yes, we're, we're business partners. We have a business together, and we've worked together oh, for just over twenty-five years wow. now. Yeah, I know, really long partnership. Brilliant. So. He said he will have to have me cured if I ever try to leave that work partnership. We're yeah. not married yeah. uh, because I know too much. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, is this your not, first not book? Not literally have me killed. But, you know, <laughs> I know, I know. Figuratively, yeah. <laughs> so, is this your first book? No, we've written. This is our third book. But, right. Uh, yeah. So we co-author most of our stuff together, and uh, which I think is really nice to have again a partnership model. Uh, to make sure the thinking is rigorous. And we interviewed a lot of people for this book. So sometimes I feel a bit bad because there's a whole lot of collective wisdom in there. So our names go on the cover, but there's an awful lot of clever people's knowledge and wisdom in that book. Yeah, well, I was pleased to see some research-based. How many How many people did you interview? How many hundreds? Uh, oh, gosh, hundreds. hundreds. So some, some, you know, in different ways. Sometimes it was audience polls and questions given to, you know, 500 people at a time surveys. Some of it was, you know, face-to-face interviews, interviews we've been doing for years. Some of them we didn't, you know, we had stories that we'd gathered from conversations from the past decade or so, really, mm. uh, that we've it's all melded together into the book. And so you've said here the 12 skills. I have to ask, why 12? <laughs> it's an excellent question. Look, to be honest, there could be more than 12. But for the ability for people to hold and transmit and learn from them, yeah, 12 is a good number for human beings. Uh, it sounds, it's empirical. It's, you know, we're used to operating in 12. Mm. So we decided to limit ourselves to 12. But look, people will find the concept of forever skills. They will be able to look and see more in their own world. And some of them we've collapsed. Uh, into others, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. But otherwise, and, we yeah. could have gone forever. Yeah, I know. It, 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 and then, then you probably put people off completely because uh, it would yes. just be too overwhelming. But I do like the fact that you've combined uh, Future Proof uh, yourself, your team, and your kids. And I like the fact that you've combined work and home together, this sort of balanced, uh, you know, it should be blended now. It needs to be, which is always one of my things about it. It's all about blended work, 
workplace, uh, you know, family life, uh, work life, social life. It's all your life. It's one life and about sort of blending it all together. Um, so is, was, was that the sort of premise of, of including the, the home life in that? Well, yeah, I mean, for us, we think that the work-life divide is an artificial divide that potentially served us once upon a time. But, mm. no, as you know, as our digital devices and our home lives uh, come together, I agree that we blend them. Mm. Uh, and, we, you know, the book's got an unusual, I guess, frame in it, and we speak a lot to uh, people in companies, but, you know, they're parents. <laughs> so a lot of the conversations are about the business or the, you know, the small business or the large big corporate business, but it's also about education and their children. And the conversations are the same. You know, what are we going to do? We're in panic. We're facing this tsunami of change. We're afraid. We're reacting really quickly. And we just wanted to put a book into the marketplace and, and more importantly, an idea into people's heads that change isn't as uh, singular uh, as most people see it. So we have to take, most people take a very myopic view of change. We obsess about what's changing. And the, in the book, we share a model that we use all the time with people that makes change easier, which is a three-pronged model. So what's changing, what needs changing, where you proactively change things. Entrepreneurs spend a lot of time there. And what's unchanging. And the book's really focused on what's the unchanging stuff. Why, what won't go away? You know, we can't completely control change, but we can certainly look at it from those three facets and when we see it in its entirety we take the panic out of it and make better decisions. Yeah, I like that. Focus on the things that won't change within us. Uh, I think that's a, a really, really useful uh, useful element in that whole book. I enjoyed that very much. Uh, Kieran, what do you think uh, as we sort of in, in work into the future uh, from a business, business perspective as well, what are some of the key human skills that uh, we'll need to develop or at least focus a bit more attention on? Look, you know, as we like to say, you know, if you can replicate it, we'll automate it. Uh, so the things that aren't easily replicable that take individual response and individual uh, judgment. So if they're not cookie-cutter things, so things like communication will be always important. It always has been important. Uh, so you know, can, you, can you relate to people? Can you understand them? Empathy is always going to be important. Building team, uh, being able to transfer information clearly, quickly, easily, so people can understand it. And, and creativity skills, so... How do you problem solve? How do you come up with a new way of doing things? How do you have an insight to, you know, how do you make that data meaningful? So, again, we can capture data en masse, but we can't necessarily interpret it and make it useful. Data without meaning is, you know, just numbers, really. It's, the, it's sort of the interpretation that makes it useful. So that will be really important. Uh, and then, you know, it's always still going to be, can you, Look after yourself. Can you get stuff done? Can you make things happen? Can you get out of bed in the morning and go and achieve something? Will you get, you know, sucked into your Candy Crush app on your phone? Yeah, that's it. still those distinctions will still be really important, and we think we we're going to need more of them, if anything, uh, because you won't be able to just show up to work and input some data and do a really repetitive job. You'll have to do more than that. 
Yeah. Now, I did notice when I was doing a little LinkedIn stalking in preparation for today's <laughs> interview uh, that there's uh, you're involved with something called the Impossible Institute. Uh, and uh, you, with your background, of course, you're, I'm hooked. You've got me. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the Impossible Institute is? Well, it's a it's a training and development company. So we help organisations, big and small, uh, learn to think differently, to do change differently, and you know, to to just change what's possible for themselves, their company. We like to uh, teach a lot of skills and a lot of thinking. So it's a really fun sort of education training company. Yeah, what's what's one of the biggest uh, roadblocks or barriers at the moment with the C-suite in change? Oh, look, I think just the constant rate of change. Mm. And human beings, we're wired not to change. But obviously, we physically change, but emotionally and physiologically, our brains particularly are wired to repeat. It's made us incredibly successful as a species. We've been, you know, we, we're designed, we're pattern-making machines and to endure constant change, not get to a reset and forget. So, you know, we go, okay, it's okay, okay, it's a big change and we reset. But at the moment, we're not being given that opportunity. It's just constant. And I think the C-suite, everyone's over it. You know, change fatigue is a thing. Mm. People are just exhausted. The word change almost is just, people are numb to it and we hear a lot of that they just go oh they roll their eyes oh it's another change program running through it's another change system it's an oh we've seen it all before i think that is the biggest challenge we face is change isn't going away yet people are sick to death of it already yeah so when you do your speaking i notice you do quite a bit of motivational speaking uh, is yeah. there any particular topic that's most requested Change. <laughs> How do we do change better? Yeah, okay. <laughs> of course. I actually walked straight into that one, didn't I? <laughs> you did. It was like a trap. <laughs> it was. I trapped myself. Okay. Yeah. At the moment, usually every briefing call, so you get a briefing call beforehand, you know, make sure you understand the audience. And I, literally, if I had money for every time I get on a call, and make it. So our industry is facing a lot of change right now. Right. <laughs> I, but it's the truth. And, you know, you you have to laugh in a way, but it just is absolutely... And that's what's terrifying as a parent. I've got a 10-year-old, and it's just such a common question is we can't see 10 years out, really. You know, we can guess, but we can't truly see that far. And we know that the rate of change... Um, our friend Anders Thorman Nielsen is a speaker, and he had a great quote the other week, which was... Uh, Change is really fast, but it's the slowest it's ever going to be again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Good. interesting. Really, <laughs> yeah, very thought-provoking. Uh, yeah. And on that note, uh, if you're wanting to pr future-proof yourself and your team and your kids, have a read of Forever Skills by Kieran Funnigan and Dan Gregory, and I'm assuming it's available where all great books are sold. It is. I know bookshops are disappearing, yes. sadly. Uh, but yes, in bookshops and obviously online and your booksellers. And if people want to continue the conversation with you, Kieran, they can find you on Twitter, they can find you on Facebook under the Impossible Institute. I'll certainly be following you. And also on LinkedIn.
in. Thank you once again for your valuable time and helping all business owners, business leaders, entrepreneurs, startups, anyone else that has got a business thought, help them future-proof themselves, their team and their kids. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. We enjoy picking these brains here on taking care of business and we'll be right back with some more brain picking right after this. That's the end of another stimulating show. We hope you've enjoyed eavesdropping on our conversation, picked up some tips, learned something new, or at the very least feel inspired. If you just joined us, you missed a lot, the podcast will be on the website, artofpfm.com.au, and you can connect with me to continue the conversation, Jackie Mitchell, on social media or at brandstorm.com.au. Thank you today to our worldly and thought-provoking guests. We look forward to your company next Friday at 11am. In the meantime, keep taking care of your business.